My sermon this morning is entitled, Resurrection Living on This Side of Easter. Last, last Sunday, we celebrated the greatest event in the history of Christendom, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Today is the second Sunday of Easter, and in the lectionary list of recommended scriptures for the day is the one I have chosen from the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Now, you may not know that the book of Luke and Acts come from the same scholarship and author. So the book of Acts is a continuing story of Luke as he proceeds to tell the story of the early church. If the resurrection of Christ from the dead was incredible, the power of the resurrection demonstrated in the early church was unimaginable. Who could have guessed it? That little band of early believers had no building, no budget, no bank, no marketing plan, but they managed to grow by leaps and bounds, becoming in our day the largest religion in the world. Back then, however, they had no political power, no personal prestige, no great persuasive ability, but none of that mattered. They had a risen savior. They had a victory in Jesus. They had passion in their hearts that could not be denied. They had a commission from Christ that could not be ignored. Our scripture lesson from the fourth chapter of Acts tells us that Christ's resurrection made all the difference in the world for those early disciples. Luke reports that the community of believers had grown to 5,000. Then after a confrontation between Jesus' disciples and some of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, Luke tells us that when the followers of Jesus had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God in boldness. So what is the compelling message that these earliest followers of Jesus shared on this side of Easter? Many of you may not realize that it was not until 40 AD when the first church in Antioch was established that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Before that time, they were known as people of the way, the way of being of Jesus. This morning, I will be talking about the peace, power, and purpose that was theirs on this side of Easter. As the believers emerge from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, we can imagine the diversity of ethnic backgrounds, ideological attitudes, and theological points of view. Yet we are told that the people were of one heart and soul. How else could that have happened except through the unifying power and reconciling peace of the Holy Spirit that has been released and is now at work among them? After all, the first words that the apostles heard from the resurrected Jesus was, Peace be with you. The resurrection means peace. This peace is more than tranquility. 
It is more than a sensation of hostilities. The peace given by the resurrected Jesus was wholeness rather than division, togetherness instead of fragmentation. The Jews had a name for it. The Hebrew word that is behind the English translation is shalom. Shalom means that the pieces of life come together. Shalom is a blessing for all parts of a person's life. Shalom was what people of all ages long for and need. The apostles and people of the way bore testimony to the peace of God, which passes all understanding, which keeps our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that is what we need today, unity in the midst of division. We are living at the beginning decade of the 21st century. It is a painful time, not only because of the COVID pandemic, but also because of the deep, deep divisions in both politics and religion in our own country, and also between other nations in the world. We Christians cannot let our behavior contradict Christ's call and command to be peacemakers and to follow Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you. And if we are looking for a way to begin, Alexander Solzhenitsyn has pointed us in the right direction with these profound words from his book, The Gulag Archipelago. He says, and I quote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, end quote. So on this second Sunday of Easter, the clear compelling message we have to share about unity in the midst of identity comes to us from Psalm 51. This is what we need. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. The apostles of Jesus not only had peace, but they also experienced great power. The Holy Spirit had descended on this motley group of ex-tax collectors, fishermen and nobodies, and given them spiritual power far beyond their dreams. What a difference the resurrection made for them. Following the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were in hiding, fearing that the same fate that befell Jesus would also befall them. Yet on Easter Sunday and following the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit empowered them to cast off their fear and to proclaim the victory over sin and death of the risen Christ. That same power of the Holy Spirit to witness is given to us in this day and age. How did the people of Jerusalem and Palestine know that Jesus was really alive? It wasn't only by the testimony of Jesus' followers. It wasn't only by the joy on the faces of Thomas and Bartholomew. 
It wasn't only the empty tomb and not only the power of the risen Lord that gave to the disciples at Pentecost that made all the difference. Above all else, the living Jesus was demonstrated by their giving spirit, their care for those who were less fortunate. This became their purpose to proclaim the risen Lord by embodying the love of Christ for them and the world in active ministry to others. We read in the book of Acts, quote, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need, unquote. Imagine, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that through their combined offerings, there were no needy persons among them. The people of the way didn't just stop at proclaiming the good news of Jesus' victory over death they follow Jesus' example. That doesn't mean today that we have to, lead, to live communally and pool all of our resources together. Yet it says a lot about being generous for the sake of others. The way of Jesus literally transformed their lives. This transformation centers discipleship away from merely learning and assenting to certain truths. We have to remember that the great creeds of the church didn't happen until the third and the fourth centuries. These early disciples then were focused on proclaiming Jesus risen by living a certain way of self-sacrifice for fellow believers and later on for others. As Norman Witzba, professor of theology and ecology, has written in a book entitled Way of Love, Christianity is not in essence a set of teachings, but a way of life. Christian faith is a vision of flourishing that bears witness to God's love everywhere at work in the world. This compassion of the early followers of Jesus toward the needy really made an impression on many outsiders who've never seen such selfless service put into action like shown by the believers in the resurrection. In fact, years later, in 363 AD, pagan emperor Julian the Apostate hated Christians. He stripped them of their rights and fed them to the lions. But even Julian had to admit, quote, these godless Galileans feed not only their poor, but ours as well. Oh, that we may gain such a reputation among the pagans, end quote. He called these followers of Jesus uh, irreligious because they didn't worship the Roman gods. Compassion for the needy, therefore, 
was part of the way of the people called the followers of Jesus, the way. They put people ahead of prophets and they fought against the worship of money and the early Christians show us the way. Like Jesus, we are to proclaim the good news by living lives of self-sacrifice and service in our day and age. This includes feeding the hungry, aiding the poor, and seeking justice and respect for those that are being harmed by human greed, intolerance, and bigotry in our day and age. My friends, do people today see the love of God as displayed in the life of Jesus Christ in us? Or are we like the cute, adorable, and selfish children who want their things when they want them? The following is the toddler's creed by an unknown author. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what. If we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. You know, some people love things and use people. We see this all the time in our society, in the multiple use of scams on the phone or in email. Just a couple of weeks ago, I answered the telephone. The man on the other end said, hi, Larry, this is your son. Which one, I asked. He said, well, this is George. I said, I don't have a son named George. And then he hung up on me. As you can tell, this person loved things and used people when we as Christians are to love people and use things, there is a vast, vast difference. This reminds me of the story who was, of the mother who was preparing pancakes for her young sons, Kevin and Ryan. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. Seeing an opportunity for a moral lesson, the mother said, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Kevin, the older of the two, didn't miss a beat. He turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. As Christians, we are all to be like Jesus. Like Jesus, we must be concerned about those in our society and world who are hurting. It's not only to minister to individuals, but to also be actively involved in social justice within our community and world, where there is a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. It should sadden us that child poverty affects more than 11.5 million children in the United States. And according to estimates by UNICEF and the World Bank, more than 387 million children around the globe live in extreme poverty, 
Growing up in poverty can affect a child's access to education, proper nutrition, and comprehensive health care. These poverty statistics shouldn't be tolerable to anyone across either political spectrum. But just to decry these facts has not solved the scandal of poverty, even in as rich a country as the United States of America. As I heard the great theologian John Dominic Crossan a few years ago at a conference at Washington Island, Wisconsin, he said that in the richest country on earth, there is no excuse that we have people who are hungry, homeless, and without good medical insurance and health care. Jesus said, from everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. So the question for each of us and all of us today as the people of faith is this, if we don't do that, then who else will? As we all know, there have been millions of people who have been hurt economically by the COVID pandemic. I am grateful that our government has given additional money to businesses who have been severely damaged through no fault of their own, though I am strongly opposed to giving tax breaks to the rich. I am also especially grateful when these governmental monies are given to the poorest of our people. And I was glad to hear Pastor Melissa say a few weeks ago that there are people within our own congregation who receive these government monies and because they don't need them, are going to give them to church and to charities. Because Lynette and I are both retired and receive adequate income, unaffected by the pandemic, we too are not going to keep that extra governmental money. We have given some of it to the FACC. We are going to give some additional money to our church and to other charities. Of course, a lot of you can't afford to do that. You've been hurt by the pandemic, or you are supporting a family, or you have medical expenses, or your income is inadequate. There are a number of reasons why. But for those of you who could, afford to do so, I hope you will consider giving these additional monies for the needs of others. Today, one of the biggest threats of our country is not from outside, but from within. Unfortunately, white supremacy has once again raised its ugly head in the last few years as hate crimes have increased against blacks, Asians, and helpless immigrants fleeing from gangs and poverty to our southern border. After a presidential election that falsely claimed to be fraudulent, followed by a violent insurrection at our nation's capital, some states like Georgia, Arizona, and Texas are changing their election laws. Some of these changes seek to limit the voting ability of minority populations. Instead of restricting voting rights, all Christians, regardless of political party, should be for making it easier to vote for everyone. I wish we could get 
a constitutional amendment passed that would make it easy for people to vote in every single state. That is not likely to happen in our current divisive environment. Likewise, in our modern day and age, we desperately need countries to work together to move away from the use of fossil fuels to protect the environment. The worry is not so much for my generation, you know, I'm getting older all the time, but for future generations. They may look back at our generation and angrily shout, why didn't we act? My friends, what all of this means is that when Jesus gets a hold of our lives and we embody his love within us, resurrection living on this side of Easter will be seen and heard in the peace we feel, the power we experience, and the purpose to benefit others that will drive our lives on from that point. They will see Jesus' love and concern for others in each and every one of us. That is truly resurrection living on this side of Easter. Amen.